In a week where we heard that the GOAT, Greg Minard, will be leaving the Santa Cruz Syndicate after an incredible 16-year tenure, it feels fitting to revisit a noteworthy conversation that I had with Greg back in 2019. Given the influx of new subscribers since then and the fact that this episode was no longer available on the podcast RSS feed, I felt it was the perfect opportunity to reshare our insightful discussion. Picture the scene. In 2019, Greg and I gathered in a cosy pub in Leeds, delving into the rich tapestry of his sporting journey. We navigated through his pivotal moments with Animal Orange, Global Racing, G-Cross Honda and a substantial portion of his illustrious tenure with the Syndicate. Discover why Greg deemed the Syndicate as the ideal fit for him, explore the evolution of his role within the team over time and unravel many more fascinating aspects of his extraordinary career. So without further ado, here's the GOAT, Greg Minar. Greg Minar, welcome back to the Downtime Podcast. Thanks, thanks for, Chris. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you. It's, a, it's great coming back on you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a bit. Uh, it was a bit hectic last time. We did Fort William 2017. We yes. had a quick half an hour chat there, and uh, I was very, very nervous. Like it was one of my first interviews. I think like you were episode ten or something. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's nice to kind of <laughs> revisit this discussion and, and move it on a bit, but. Um, we're kind of wind the clocks back a little bit and because I think, you know, a lot of our listeners maybe don't even like know about some of your, the earlier part of your career, but, but even before that, motocross bikes were a big part of your life when you were young and, and car jumping on motocross bikes. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I wouldn't say the car jumping was a big part of it, <laughs> but um, I started racing motocross at five and I raced till my early teens and on the way um, we had a school fate. And that's how car jumping came up, and we just thought we'd have a little laugh. My friends and I would build a jump and jump cars for the school fates and raise some money for a charity. Cool. How many did you clear? Can you remember? I think we did about seven or eight the first show, and we built up to 16. Fair play. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. a bad effort, is it? Yeah. Young Evil can evil then. Yeah. Nice one. And how, so, how did um, do mountain bikes come into things then? So, my parents bought a bicycle shop. Okay. In, uh, I didn't actually know what year it was. I was about 12 or 13. I, we have no idea why my dad decided to buy the shop or, or get involved with it. Uh, and that kind of exposed us to bicycles. I always ridden BMX and had a BMX, but motocross was my main sport. And with this shop, my father couldn't take me out racing as much. So I, my results kind of declined and I was uh, riding more bicycles because I could do it with my friends and yeah, I didn't need my parents taking me out to the track. I could just go and ride in the forest and start enjoying it. Sweet. And and how long was it before you went and had a go at a race? And was it downhill, the first event that you did? The first event actually was a downhill. But downhill wasn't really a, a, a separate discipline like it is today. We used to go and do everything. It was one bike and you raced cross country and did downhill. And if there was trials, you did that as well, all on yeah. the same bike. So... It, it it was, yeah, it wasn't specifically downhill, but my first event was a downhill event. Yeah. And was, was it that side of things that you were attracted to, like the adrenaline side, or did it you just, kind of enjoy all of it? I, I raced cross-country as well. I, I competed at a relatively high level as a sub-junior and, and junior, but the skills and, and the speed was something that I'd learned in motocross, felt more at home at downhill, so... I kind of lent that way. Yeah. And so were there good results in the downhill side of things pretty quickly? Better results. You know, racing okay. in South Africa is a, a much smaller scene. So it, uh, I just felt more comfortable at it. And I then got selected to go to world champs 
in 97 for downhill. So yeah. that's when my separation from cross country and downhill kind of took place. You start, yeah, started to focus a bit more on that side I of did, things. Yeah. yeah. And you spent um, a chunk of time based in the UK. You came over as part of the Animal Orange team way back in the day. I remember you at a couple of National Point Series races pulling suicides over tabletops <laughs> and uh, and generally baff- baffling most of us as to how you were doing it. But how did that come about? So in 1999, I was racing for Kona and we're sponsored. I had a deal with Tioga for tyres and Tioga were quite a big sponsor of Animal Orange. I had a pretty good season in 1999. I finished eighth in the World Cup in... Big Bear, sixth at World Champs, and really great World Champs as a junior. Uh-huh. But this kind of gave me a, a, a footing into the animal team. The, the guy, Dave Wooten from Tioga, had spoken to Steve Kitchen and um, came on like an, on the 11th hour. So the kind of the team was somewhat set up, and I joined in as like a very semi-professional. Uh, but it was enough for me to get to all the World Cups and... Yeah. And you know the national point series and and travel around with the team. Yeah, yeah. We were, were you leaving school at that point to go and do? I that? did left school. Yeah. Okay. What was yeah. that? What was that decision like to to yeah to leave your, your for education? me it was a great for me it was an easy decision for my parents it wasn't as <laughs> as easy I guess. Um, our schooling finishes at eighteen. Our high school. Yeah. Um, I was sixteen when I said to my parents, you know, I need to move to Europe and learn to race on these tracks. They're so they completely different to what we ride in South Africa. There's the terrain is kind of rocky and rooty and we don't really ride terrain like that. As well as just wet terrain. Yeah. So I, I knew I had to get to Europe to race and compete on a different level and on different terrain and tracks. And I don't think I wasn't gonna be able to do school as well as move to Europe and race. So it was a tough decision. My parents spoke to headmaster, and uh, he kind of leant on towards my thinking was that I could always come back and finish it. I wouldn't yeah. necessarily agree it would be the right decision these days. I think, um, I think growing up in South Africa and trying to get exposure to Europe and the US is a lot harder. I think if I'd brought, I was brought up in Europe, it would be a lot easier for me to finish school and race at the same time. Yeah, okay. But that was a decision I had to make. Yeah. Fair play. And did you live with one of the, the team at the time? How did that all work? So I was on a UCI development program. So UCI helped get me around to some events in Europe. So I stayed in Switzerland and we traveled around with them. Martin Whitey helped me out quite a lot. Okay. And he was working at UCI at the time and he um, got me onto this program. Cool. So what's, yeah, so they help you get to races. Is there other developmental stuff that they do with you like coaching and it wasn't back then no right martin whitely kind of directed me a little bit helped me out um kind of gave me um direction which i need to go training wise Uh um event wise and you know it was a big help you know we had we had no idea what was going on in the scene and trying to get it find our way into it was was hard yeah and martin whitely was he i guess part of your next move then because you went from orange animal to Global racing, which was his squad, yeah. Yeah, so when he left UCI, he had the stream of putting a team together with riders from each continent. I was obviously the the African continent and the piece missing. And once he had figured that out and and got the funding for the team, he left UCI to run global racing. Yeah, and sticking with that orange bikes as well at the time. The, yeah, so I went, uh, yeah, managed to bring orange bikes with me into yeah. global. Awesome. And was it t- the 222? Is that the bike at the it time? It was, or? yeah, 222. Yeah. Yeah, and again, pretty successful 
part of your career. So 2001, I think, was your first World Cup overall. Yes. And your first World Cup win. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did it feel to start putting those kind of results together? Did you did you always believe that you had that ability to get to that point, or was it? I don't think I always believed that I had the ability, but I didn't doubt myself that it, it could happen. I never thought that a you know. It, it wouldn't cross my mind that it could never happen. Yeah. But I never thought that I'd get there. So although it's somewhat a negative thought to, to be there, it's quite positive in a way that it's open, that I've I ne- I never closed that train of thought that it might happen. Yeah. But I just didn't expect myself being there. Yeah. And against tough opposition, so you beat Nico Vulio to the win yes. that season. Yeah. That must have felt amazing because Nico at that point, was so dominant, or had been dominant for such a chunk of time as well. He had, yeah. So yeah, it was um, it was wild. I mean, to be twenty eight points going into the final World Cup and twenty eight points behind Nico, it's a it's a full on <laughs> challenge, you know. And that's a that's a that's a battle going into that round. So, yeah. I mean, it. I look back and I think it it was quite crazy to to be racing. I was obviously the underdog and the unknown and. And young, so maybe got nothing really to lose. We're a lot tougher for Nico in that World Cup series to 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 win it overall. But he came back strong in the World Championships and gave us good hiding. <laughs> yeah, he knows what he's doing, that guy he for sure. And and you obviously you'd obviously clocked that, and you ended up working with his coach or his trainer, yes. Stefan Stefan Gerard. Stefan Gerard, yeah. So was that a conscious decision from you, like, hang on a minute, Nico's going pretty well, I want some of what he's getting? Or was it just a relationship that formed between the two of you? What what drove no, you in I his direction? That, you know, 2002 was a tough season for me. I dislocated my shoulder in 2001 after the World Cup. And that's a kind of injury that that hasn't really, we haven't really spoken about much or, or it doesn't get much attention is the amount of shoulder injuries I had all the way till joining Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. And that was just a niggle that kept affecting me through my twenties. But the, the, the idea to, to go to Stefano's 2002 was, was quite a tough year. I struggled. Um, and I just thought I need, needed a trainer to guide me and, and put me in the right place and just something that I can totally lean on, forget about what I need to do for training and just follow a program. Yeah. And were, were there big changes from, you know, from what you were doing before your previous programs <laughs> to working with Stefan? Was it a bit of a shock? Oh, no, I've always, you know, I've always ridden a bit of cross country, so I've always been relatively fit. Uh-huh. Um, I think my training program from dirt jumping all day to, <laughs> to being in a decent routine and, and a bit of structure made the difference. And going into 2003, it, it was something that I needed. Yeah. Yeah. And that was your first world championships. World championships yeah. Yeah. So to to get that finally, I guess at that point you'd started to have a bit more self-belief and the results yeah. were coming. You must have been hungry for that result. Well, it was also at a, at a time when uh, World Cups and American Nationals, the Norbers series, clashed. Yeah. And being on an American team, I had to, I had to race all the Norbers. So uh, yeah. in 2003, I, I didn't race a full World Cup season, neither did I race in 2004. So I missed two years of racing, even though in 2004 I was leading the series, the World Cup series. Yeah. Um, Honda made me go back to Norbers, and that's what it was like. So yeah. um, I'd won the National Series in 2003 and then won the World Championship. So it was, it was a really good season. Yeah, solid season. And then you had um, one year, I think, on, was it Harrow, Lee Dungaree's yeah. team? 
which were two thousand and three, an intense built bike or a tense design bike at that. Point yes, in a time. tense built bike. Yeah, yeah. How how was that? So you had Mike King and Mick Hanna on your team, I think. Yeah. So that was kind of you know Mick was with me on Global Racing and he'd yeah. gone to our. Um, Mike was a a rider that I always looked up to. You know, he had two thousand uh, ninety three world champion. So you know he's got some great pedigree. And it, it was a good te- it was a good experience going over to America and being based out of there. So I'd had a year in the UK and a couple of years in Europe, and now mm-hmm. going to a US based team. Yeah, things were done slightly different, and I enjoyed the feel. It, yeah. it, we had a good team. Yeah, but then Martin was obviously working away behind the scenes, and uh, the Honda project came together. Do you remember getting what happened? Did you get a call from Martin to to op, well, you know, talk to you about that? No, the the Honda thing came about as one of the riders on Global Racing, Naoki Dagawa, was riding on Honda. And Naoki had come to me to to see if I'd be interested to ride in okay. Honda in the following years. Um, through my discussions with them, Martin was managing my uh, me personally at the time. And that's how Honda realized that they needed someone to manage their program internationally. Uh, okay. So that's how Martin came on board. Ah, interesting. Mm. And you, you were obviously very attracted by that that opportunity because i think you were were you still under contract with harrow at the time there was you had to, to negotiate effectively to be able to, to yeah i had a move. year i had a year contract on harrow so okay um yeah there was no um ties really yeah it's um i'd love to have stayed and i think um the ceo at the time jim just when i spoke to him about it all i just said you know it's it's kind of an opportunity to, to develop a bike yeah and uh I've always been interested in development of bikes and here I can get right involved with it and it's something that I want to do and he, he thought it was a great opportunity for me to go and do that too. So yeah, yeah. it was nice to go with the blessing. Yeah. And uh yeah, to build the bike. I mean the first the first ride on that Honda it was it wasn't a great bike to ride. Okay. So we did a lot of development to get the bike race ready for two thousand four season. Yeah. So how much time did you have to, to do that? Was them? We had four months. Right. So pretty, yeah, it's a pretty short yeah. period of time. So what, what went on? You're obviously working very closely with Honda engineers yeah. and Showa, the suspension brand as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So did you go, did you, was that done in Japan? How did that all kind of work? We, we tested in different locations. I can't remember exactly where I, actually our first test session was in Australia. Um, we tested out there pre-season. The bike had a, the bike's geometry was way out. So we changed that. Um, then altered it with the the insight that Honda had. So they had some theories behind head angle and, and how they want to run a head angle. And so we worked with the engineers to create this bike that that could be a World Cup raceable bike. Uh, initially when we got on it, it, it I don't think you could. Um, it right. was very soft, a very hard bottom bracket, very steep head angle. So the, the handling of the bike was way out. So we managed to fix it up and started off with a bang winning in Fort William yeah what was the do you think that bike you know to the point you got it to was it a long way ahead of the rest of the field as a bike goes at that point in time or was it just pretty exciting because no one knew what was in the bottom of it I think yeah uh, I think we had some stuff going that was that was different definitely I mean having the gearbox you know was was something that mountain biking hadn't seen before all this bike industry generally yeah I think we had got to a point on the bike where we knew it was riding well we had probably some insight into different characteristics of handling that 
that other buy companies or, or nothing nothing was really happening you know everyone was trying to go low in slack and mm-hmm. and honda used a, a theory where to steepen up the head angle and get the bike to handle but uh to use different characteristics get the bike handling differently so yeah. um their mentality into the bike was was a little bit out of the industry which was cool and, and it worked well it 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 was a, a bit of a struggle at times because we ran two chains so we had mm-hmm. an external chain and internal chain so there was a lot of drag yeah uh, but that was all the progression since starting with Honda. We worked a lot on the geometry, and then after that, we're working on trying to get the gearbox to run more efficiently, um, less drag, mm-hmm. um, improve the handling of the bike, length of the bike. So it was it was cool. It was, a, it was a great experience. Yeah, definitely. And what was it like working with those guys? Because they're obviously totally not bike industry people. Yeah. Was it was it a different way of working to anything you'd experienced up to that point? Oh, totally, and totally different to what we work with these days too so yeah the the experience gained in in those hundred days are valuable yeah do you think it's important for riders to understand how their bikes and how their components work oh for sure definitely and to understand you know that that you can't really be stagnant about it either you know you you've got to evolve with the times and and keep moving you can't go back to a bike that was good to you know two years ago it just doesn't work that way. You yeah. gotta kind of create it, recreate it and, and move with the times and what's what we're finding out now is, is is a lot more beneficial than what we learned two years ago. Yeah, for sure. Exciting stuff. Yeah. And then um so you move from Honda onto Santa Cruz Syndicate and you've you've always looked very, very comfortable there. Yeah. How important do you think it is for a rider not to just get on a team but to get on the right team for them? Oh, I think that the team environment's super important. I think that's what really clicked initially. It was having a great understand, uh, Rob Roscoe having a great understanding of what, um, pro riders or, or athletes need for support. And then Kathy, I mean, being a racer herself and being a mother and, um, she kind of knows how to make a happy race. And she always goes by the motto of a happy race is a fast racer. And that's how we, we, that's how we did it all in the syndicate. I mean, I think my first year on the syndicate, we had 15 podiums um, between the three of us over seven World Cups. So that's that's a hell of a tally. Yeah, that's outstanding, isn't yeah. it, really? Amazing stuff. And have you ever been tempted to move away? I think there was some talk in your conversation with Loic about there was an opportunity with Lapierre and Gravity Republic at the time, as it was. Have you ever thought kind of about doing something that isn't the syndicate or are you just super comfy there? No, I've, I think I'm comfortable. It's it's been a good place. I think the the way the team is set up and the environment of the team is super important. Um, I think if that changes, then obviously, it will, you know, it might create thought. But I think Santa Cruz as a brand has has been really good for me, and I've enjoyed being there. So I don't yeah. I haven't tried to look at and move elsewhere. It's it's a it's a happy place. It's a good place. Yeah, and do you think your your role within the team? has kind of changed as the teams change. So initially it was kind of Rennie and Petey and you and Josh. Now you've got Loris and Lucas, so you're kind of the, the more experienced guy on the team. Yeah. Has the way that, that yeah, your fit within the team, has that changed over time, you think? It has. I think it's, I think that the old syndicate knew how to work together and in terms of, you know, myself, Steve, Josh, we always had a great relationship where we'd ride together, learn to, learn to help each other out and racing was racing it's kind of separate i think with the new syndicate we le- we're learning how that all fits together 
and obviously it takes a bit of time to to get that going but I think there's a lot to learn from each other um, I just by watching Luke and Laura so it um, I learn a, a new style of riding completely so it it can definitely benefit and I think that's what's so important about a team environment that if the riders are working together it lifts the whole team up yeah you know racing is completely different to helping each other find lines and again the right line if you can race better it's it's uh you helping everyone else we're all going to race better together yeah. putting, putting it together in the race run is not what happens in practice practice is trying to help each other figure out the best line so once you get that dynamic working well a, a team can really succeed of it yeah and do you get a pleasure out of seeing those guys do well are you are you kind of glad to give them advice and see them see oh them yeah achieve? Oh, it, it is it is a it is a great feeling when you see them do well i mean Loris winning his first World Cup last season, I was on the sideline injured, but um, that was an uh, incredible feeling, just just seeing him put, put together such an amazing run. Yeah, yeah, and two super fast guys as well, I guess it keeps it keeps pushing you, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely does. I mean, it's a, it's a team effort in the end of the day, and if we can all help each other out, that's, that's the aim of it. Yeah, yeah, cool. I want to talk a little bit about the 2017 season, because I'm kind of from a mental perspective interested mm. in certain elements of it so you're you had a great season you're leading the overall there's been ups and downs but you're still in the in the leader's jersey and we turn up at Val de Sol you kind of know you've got Aaron Gwynn hunting you down I guess yeah and fierce competitor right um, yeah definitely someone who can who can challenge so you're at Val de Sol practice on the morning of qualifying I think and you have that huge crash where the bike hit that pole and yeah, you, you get up, your bike's in two pieces. What's what's going through your head at that point in time? Like how how do you deal with that in a calm and measured manner that enables you to then go and qualify second? I'm not sure I'd really dealt with it in a calm, <laughs> measured way. It was a you know rush down to the bottom. Luckily, there was a um, an ex racer on the side of the track at Renovan, and he grabbed the bike and managed to take it down to Marshy. Um, once Marshy got, I mean, Marshy doesn't really trust me as a mechanic <laughs> and, um, kind of like my dad, you know, right. like just nothing's good enough. But I was, uh, straight to work with Marshy, helping him just sep- get the frame off and swap the frame out. Cause I didn't like going onto my spare bike. Uh, I, f- I feel that there's always, um, it's, it's got a, di- no matter if the bike's built exactly the same, it's got a different feel. Yeah. And so I like to keep that same feeling. So it was better for us to swap out the frame uh-huh. to keep the bike the same. Yeah. So I was busy helping him with that. And then I had to get ready to go up. So he finished off the bike. I went up and started warming up and he came up with the bike. But, you know, it's, um, it was a freak accident. Um, I was pushing it quite hard when I, that happened. So I need to back things down a little bit and I just had to refocus on, on the race ahead. You say like that's super simple to do, but like, have you have you got or have you learned over the years any sort of techniques that help you focus or help you kind of remain in the moment and calm at times like that? Because you've been in a few of these sure. situations, right? No, I, I haven't actually got a process to do it. I just uh, kind of go through it. You have to. It's uh, I, I can't really explain it, but yeah, you just. Um, you have to reset and refocus. It's there's no way of doing it. I just guess I'd kind of do it naturally. Do you, do you think you've got better at that over time? I think at, at definitely at some points in my career, I got a bit too panicky and a bit too worried about detail. Okay. And I've had to adjust from that. 
um, I'd freak out over the s- smallest things and just really stress me out. And and yeah, that's that. I've adjusted slightly from there. And, um, but I've always been quite particular about things, about lines on the track, about my bike, about how I'm prepared and and warm up and everything else. So um, I think it's just realigning and, re- and readjusting after each season. You know, knowing what I need to work on to to have a better season the, f- the following year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then second place qualies, then you've got your race run to come. Yeah. And again, you sat at the top of the hill, kind of knowing what needs to be done. I think you had about a 23-point lead maybe over Aaron yeah. at that point. What's going through your head at the top of a of a, a run that's that significant? I was ready to go. I was ready to go. I, was, I had a great week's practice. My bike felt really good. I was in, in the right place and i knew i just had to go full steam ahead and so that's what i i did and ended up blowing a tire off the rim and it didn't end very well no but you know i, I went and given it a shot and i think i had some good splits to back it up yeah yeah and yeah. on that track i hadn't really had great results i mean i've had a second or so but i've never really felt in contention for a win i think i was ready to to win that day definitely yeah it was that it looked like that run yeah was there was happening and it and do you make a conscious decision in those circumstances like how you're going to approach your run do you is it as simple as going right i'm going all in here i'm going to roll the dice or are you thinking maybe in this section i'm gonna oh no it's all planned and orchestrated it's it's not a bit of it's not definitely not uh let go of the brakes at the top and we're going to mash it down it's (laughs) it's all thought out and planned and i've got a very um i analyze every bit of the track and and visualize it and make sure that it's it's almost like a routine so i've i've planned the pace and and everything i need to that i know i need to ride at and the lines i need to be in where i'm going to be braking and and what have you so it's it's well thought out yeah you say visualized do you actually do a visualization do you sit and kind of go through stuff oh yeah a lot i do i do quite a lot of that yeah i find it um it gets me ready gets me prepared and is it is it as straightforward as visualizing yourself riding down the track, or is it more involved in that you're kind of visualizing how you nailing that section and succeeding, and you and you getting as far as visualizing crossing the finish line with the green lights, or like how how far do you take that? Uh, you take it pretty far, okay. or at least I do. Yeah, I find it when I'm visualizing something, I I do it perfectly. You know, my technique's great, my braking's good. Um, I know what line I need to be on. There's no mistakes. Yeah, you you just you just keep practicing the same track over and over again. Amazing. But yeah, to this to your point, yeah, you do hear crowd. You do see the finish line. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And do, has has the advent of helmet cameras made much difference to that approach? Do you use them much to you, kind of help you, or um, you can? And I do use especially on a track that I've never ridden before. So I'll go back and make sure I know the track. Uh-huh. But there can also be the part where helmet cameras take away from the visual- visualization. Right. Because um, that's something you have done, not something you're going to go and exactly. do maybe so better. Or... I, I, if if I'm trying to learn a track and uh, know where to go or try and remember what the line's doing or something, I'll, I'll look at a helmet cam, but usually I prefer to visualize. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Good stuff. So 2018 then, it was a, a tough season with you for injury and then kind of working your way back from that and through the 2019 season, but it's definitely picked up a few yeah. solid finishes, some podiums. 
Um, but I get, I do get the impression that, that you want it more. So, you know, everyone's talking about when's Greg going to retire, but I don't think that's going on in your head. It seems like you're focused no. on being at the top. So I'm assuming that there's no chance you're going to be, uh, hanging up your hat just yet. And no. then you're going to want to go and take it to the French next year. Yeah, oh, we've got to. It's, um, you know, I finished sixth overall and I, I wasn't completely happy with the season. I think missing out in Maribor, um, Definitely didn't help. Uh-huh. And I feel that was like a tail end of, of my season last year. You know, not being a protected rider. Yeah. Um, there are quite a few top riders that, that didn't qualify in Maribor, except they were protected. So like Danny Hart, for instance. So I think that was a bit of like, and then it kind of killed my momentum going into Fort William. Fort William, I needed to make sure I qualified and then could race. Yeah. And that's when I started to pick it up. Um, I had one or two pretty bad results I felt like uh, Andorra wasn't really great I expected a bit okay. more out of Andorra uh, but I, I I feel like my speed was there and one or two things um, that I need to work on on the bike I felt like I'd made some adjustments to the the rear end of my bike yeah but the bike was sitting too tall under braking so okay. I wasn't able to really dig in and get some hard braking in and so many things we realized into West Virginia where I was losing time. And we've got, you know, straight after the U.S. Open, where we went West Virginia, U.S. Open, then straight to Santa Cruz and mm-hmm. sat down with our head engineer, Nick Anderson. And we um, mashed it out, got a plan going and going to start testing hopefully in December. So I think if if I finish the season and I'm not scrutinizing my bike to, to try and find a bit more time or looking or going over myself and seeing where I need to train better or perform better. I think that's when I know it's time. Um, but right now it's, um, I've still got that fire to, to do well. And I think if, if I lose that fire, that's when it's time to pull the plug. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what do you think it's going to take to to beat riders like Amory and Loic? I mean, both super consistent and yeah. putting together some some very impressive runs throughout the season. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been impressive. The last two years have been really impressive. You have Amory who who raised the bar. I mean, it, it was impressive what he did in 2018. Yeah. Um, he was, he's loose, he's strong, he manages to ride it out. He came into this season and he had Luke Bruni had matched his pace, but a little bit smoother and a little bit more consistent. So it's, uh, the pace has gone up and now it's been matched with consistency, which is tough. And I think these two riders have definitely pushed the envelope a bit. Yeah, it's gonna the bar has to be raised again, but in a sense of trying to um, lift the pace up again, but as well keep it in a controlled manner. I mean, that's the only way you're gonna beat Lewick, and you know you have to raise the bar to beat to beat Amory when he's on fire. He's he's really hot. Yeah, and that that kind of experience pays off, I guess. At that point, generally, it seems to be the more experienced riders that have the head and the kind of mental side of things to be that maybe a bit more consistent throughout the season. Yeah. So I guess finding, yeah, how do you notch up the speed to to really battle against those boys? But it sounds like you've got some pretty good, pretty solid ideas on what he needs to do. Yeah, doing. the thing is, I think I'm, I'm working on trying to match the pace, but I really need to work on elevating the pace. Okay. It's, um, I I think that was, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a lesson learned throughout the season, you know, now the racing is, is so fierce. It's that first day of training. You've got to be up to pace. Mm-hmm. And whilst you're going to lose some track speed through the weekend. So, um, that's what the guys are bringing to the World Cups now. And 
that's to, to match your pace, that's where you need to be. But I also feel I need to kind of be thinking how I can elevate the pace as well. Good stuff. It's good to hear. And um, I'm, I'm in, interested in how you go about finding time on a track throughout the weekend because you've got various points where you can kind of check in with where you're at. So you've got your time training, your qualifying yeah. runs. Is there a certain process or way that you approach trying to find time if you need to? And how much do you look into kind of that data and go and use it? Definitely, if I find I'm, I'm slow in a sector, I'll definitely pay a bit more attention into why I was slow and, and understand the, the rhythm of the track, the line that I'm riding, maybe adjust the line, maybe push a bit harder. Maybe I felt like my 100% needs to be 110 through that section rather than 100. Uh-huh. And trying to find a bit, I, I try personally try and find areas where I can risk it a bit more and, and open it up. Yeah. And do you do you ever look at what other people are doing or do you focus on how to improve what you're doing? Does that make sense? Yeah. You do look at others. I mean, you see them all. You're trying to figure out if they're on a completely different line, especially if they're faster than you in a section by a couple of seconds. Yeah. You do try and look to see what, what's, what, what are they doing different. Sometimes it's just a slightly faster average pace. And, and that's what I'm noticing is... is it's just those micro, that that just micro increments of um, speed everywhere can make quite a big difference in the sector. Yeah. So it's it's trying to keep that average pace a little higher. Yeah, it's amazing because you are literally looking for little bits here and there, especially yeah. these days with the margins so close on those on the tracks that we race on. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So you've had some some very uh, esteemed colleagues and teammates throughout your career so far. Who would you say has had the biggest impact on your riding and your racing out of all of those people? Well, what do you mean riding? Well, an impact in what way? Who's Who have you been with on a team and you feel like you've taken things from them? You do, you've learned from the way they do things and found that that works for you or, you know, their approach to a race weekend, maybe you've taken some of that, like, I don't know if there's, I don't know if I can put it to a teammate to, to say that that one person gave me so much that it, it's, um, it kind of elevated my riding. I feel like uh-huh. I lost out in my earlier years, like global racing. I felt like, you know, I knew, I, knew, I knew there was a big name rider supposed to be signed to the team. And I thought, well, that would be a great learning curve, trying to find out, you know, learn how to race from a, a real pro, but that never really happened. So okay. I kind of had to learn the ropes for myself. Yeah. Um, it's I think I do definitely pull from my teammates, you know, riding training and uh understanding the way they ride. I, I would say Loris and Luca definitely have a different style to what I've ever seen. I think their their style of riding is something that's impacted me a lot recently. Okay. Um but the way I do things I've always done in my own way, so it's really hard to change that or to, to look elsewhere. I'm a bit nervous to to mess with those recipes because I don't actually know how I ended up the way <laughs> I analyze and and focus on racing. It's something that I've learned to do on my own. Yeah, if it works, it works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the sport obviously has changed a lot. You know, you, it's a long career that you've had and you've been at the top for a very long part of it. What do you think has changed and what have you had to change personally to kind of stay at the top of it? Oh, lots changed. Uh, sport's so professional now. Um, 
I'd say the, the biggest change has probably come in the after party. <laughs> just not as big as it used to be. Is that a disappointment? Oh, yeah. But, it, it go, it, you know, it's part of the course. It's, it's a way more professional sport yeah. the, than, than it was five, ten years ago. Yeah. Um, things have definitely changed. I think over, over time, trying to deal with the change in suspension, um, it's, it's gone from like a really slow rebound back in the 2000s, which was supposed to be the way forward to, to quite fast rebound. Mm-hmm. Um, that's changed a lot. I think it's it's something I've been able to to mould with and and understand. And I, I I guess you know I was always always taught that there's one thing that's certain life and that's change, and so you've got to kind of be prepared for that. So yeah. what's good today might not be good tomorrow, and you've got to make what you have today slightly better for tomorrow. So yeah. I've always carried that mentality through and try to improve on what we've got, and never been ready to settle on, on something i don't i think that's what's kept me going for so long yeah yeah that makes sense and maybe your willingness to change has, has helped you adapt and and be yeah. yeah be at the top end of it for so long where others maybe have got frustrated and it's funny we say that when we're talking about developing a bike or or working on the bike we, we're always moving forward but then we're just talking about how we prepare for a race and that's never really changed okay so yeah uh, I, it's 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 a hard one it's um so that, I, I yeah, think the, within your training and, and your ability to ride and what you focus on needs to change. Your equipment always has to change and progress. I mean, we're riding aluminium bikes now. We're on carbon, carbon wheels. Um, everything's changing all the time. Yeah. Yeah, got to keep up with it for sure. And you you do quite a lot of things outside of riding as well. So you're quite yeah. into your surfing, I think. Yep. Golf, bit of golf? I play, I play a bit of golf. I live on a on a golf estate so it's easy, easy to go and knock a few balls in the afternoon yeah i don't play as much as i'd like um but i get a couple rounds and yeah, yeah. And do you think that having those other interests is is an important part of staying fresh i think what's what's been really what's really helped me stay fresh is when i go back to south africa you know there's no gravity scene it is all about marathon racing yeah and so everything kind of stays fresh because i'm out of the season um, back home and then in, in April it's all bike talk again and and World Cup racing and everything else I mean it's it's a complete break from the scene I think that's what's kept me fresh I mean I love going surfing and, and playing golf and riding motorbikes and and it, it does take my mind off it but I think that being completely out the scene is 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 what's really kept me going yeah and and it, I guess the risk of that is that you're not on a downhill bike for that part of the year yeah do you, do you find that affects you or do you do you like having a, a good long break from it oh well, going into this season i rode quite a lot at home more than i have in previous seasons okay and uh, i felt really prepared coming into the season bike wise it was more bike time than i've ever had um it didn't help me in Maribel, but it it was uh yeah it was it was good i mean i i feel like i'll probably do the same kind of thing going into next season yeah, and you've got a lot of business interests as well. So yeah. there's the bike shop, a coffee yeah. shop now. Yeah, a few yeah. other things that you keep yourself busy with. Yeah, I'm quite busy um, in and around and um, different businesses. And I think half of it was knowing that I, I've not had a, um, I haven't finished school, I haven't studied anything. I need uh-huh. to kind of set up something for the future. So um, I try to do as much as I can. 
I mean, you've got a bit of spare time. It's maybe in in the last couple of years, I've tried to delegate more than be as hands-on. Okay. Um, just so I can focus more on racing. Yeah. And uh, But it's... Uh, it's also great to learn and to understand the, the real world. So the transition after racing is a lot smoother. Yeah. And have you got any thoughts on what you might want to do when that transition happens? It doesn't feel like it's anywhere near. No. But... <laughs> I don't know. I, I really like developing product. Okay. It's, um, I, I feel I've got a, a decent neck. I think understanding retail helps uh-huh. with the development of product as well as um, very minor uh, experience in manufacturing. But it's... It's, uh, I enjoy it. It's, it's, um, something that I really get involved with. Excellent. Good stuff. And, um, a lot of people travel for work and that's what you're doing now. You're on a yep. speaking tour of the UK. Well, first off, how's the tour going? It's been good. It's been, uh, I feel like a, a fish out of water. It's, it's really tough standing in front of a, a, a room full of people. And then you're repeating the same story. It's, uh, it's, it's really, it's tricky, but I've enjoyed it too. It's, um, I find it similar to racing in a sense that you've got to get nervous and ready before. Um, I feel if I'm not nervous, I'm not going to really be ready for it. So, yeah. uh, the nerves and then afterwards, it's, once it's gone well, it, you get a bit of a rush afterwards. So, um it's it's been cool it's it's been really busy though so mm-hmm. some of the nights have been slightly tired and yeah. the rush afterwards is a, is a bit dull but um it's been cool it's yeah. been really cool what's the reception been like from the from the audiences well, i think i think pretty good i mean judging from the social media reach it's been pretty big so cool. um we had danny hart on stage the other night he came um to one of the shows so we thought to include him yeah and uh it was a lot of fun it, it was good uh, having him on stage Nice. Yeah, it's cool, man. I'm looking forward to seeing it tonight. But yeah, you're obviously you're away traveling a lot. And this is, I guess, just one example of that. How do you maintain your fitness while you're doing something like this or while you're traveling a lot? Or are you full off season mode at the moment? Well, I'm in off season mode. So I'm full burger and beer. <laughs> nice. But uh, it's, uh, I think I need to start eating some healthier food because <laughs> the beers are not going to slow down this month. Um, so <laughs> I think I've got to quit the fish and chips. But this is normally a period where I'm totally off the bike. So okay. I like to get off the bike, get, um, get behind the businesses for a bit. Yeah. Um, start working on that. And, uh, this was a great opportunity to continue the tour, um, in a period where I'm, I'm not riding as much. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'll probably, st- I normally start training in November, December. So it yeah. doesn't affect anything, but it's uh, normally quite a, a downtime for myself. Okay. And do you do you carry anything with you? Do you like do you go out for a bit of a run, or do you, do you bring any mobility did, uh, kit with you? Or? I did. Uh, I I do run a bit. Okay. And I went for a little bit of a guilt run a couple of days ago, and I <laughs> I said to my girlfriend, I think we'll keep it to five k's. She wanted to push on a bit longer, and I was like, I, you know, I don't think it's smart for me to run further if I haven't run for a while. Right. And I was feeling it the next day. Fair play. So um, I haven't been. I haven't managed to get out again. Um, so. In a week, I've run once, five Ks. Solid. Yeah. So <laughs> that's normally a way that I try and keep this dad bod under control through October. Um, try to get ready for summer, you know, summer yeah. in South Africa in December. Oh, yeah. Nice. You got that to yeah. go back to. Good stuff. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but um, we've got four questions that we kind of close every show with these days. Um, we asked you one of them back in 2017, so we won't cover that again. 
But the first one of the, th- the, the, the remaining three, if our listeners had £150 to spend to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? Oh, the problem is I don't know exactly what things cost. Okay. So straight away, I'll <laughs> have enough. gone on £150 I would spend on your body. Okay. Because that's going to probably get the most improvement. Yeah. And anything specific, obviously not burgers to put into your body. But. <laughs> uh, just some good good mobility and, and exercise. Okay. Yeah. Get a bit yeah. of support from someone that knows what yeah. they're doing maybe. All right. Question two. If you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to focus on? What would you want to learn? And maybe we can have a mountain bike one and a non-mountain bike if you want. So a coaching lesson. Yeah. Flip, I should have taken coaching lessons for public speaking because that's tough. Um, and the second one would probably, well, both would be, one would be public speaking, the other one would be spelling. I'm okay. a horrendous speller. If I could learn to spell and read and write properly, yeah. I would save so much time writing emails. But I have to read, I've come pretty, I guess I've learned to be kind of creative because I've always had to restructure the sentences differently because I can't spell right word. so you found ways out of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> good stuff and what what about within mountain biking is there anyone that you see that you're like oh i wish i could do that like that or like is there anyone that you'd want to pick their brains on a certain element of either their riding or their racing or the way they live their life no i feel bad not mentioning anyone but no i've never really thought of that okay interesting no. fair play must be, well, yeah, you're pretty handy on a bike. So. I mean, it, yeah, I'd love to be able to send some of those gap jumps and, okay, you know, maybe someone like uh, Brett Reader or or Ethan Nelson or like that uh-huh. who just seems a bit fearless or yeah. the Carnegie. Yeah. I'd, I'd love jumping, but jumping those jumps that they do, I'd love to do it, but I don't think I have big enough balls to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, do you think we'll see you at uh, anything like Hardline or, or Rampage again kind of? Lately, you totally um, say no. You never know, but um, racing's where I need to focus, and yeah, it's um, I need to to have a good off season, come you know, training and everything else, and it's really hard recovering from an injury. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, hardline's yeah. definitely uh, given a few people a bad off season yeah. start. I think. Isn't yeah. It? So yeah, cool. All right, and then um, the final question: What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? The first thing I do every day is have a coffee. I have to because I'm normally so buggered when I wake up. I need to kind of, and that's definitely beneficial. Yeah. Something seriously that benefits me is, oh, I don't know. What's a common answer here? Give me some ideas. I don't think we've had, well, I don't think we've had any common ones yet. We've not been doing this one long. So, ah. so a lot of people say... I wish you had prepared me. I yeah. could have thought about this. Well, a lot of people say they wish they stretched every day, but they would oh, be geez, lying yeah. if they said they did. Oh, yeah. I, I, can, I can attest to that. If I, if I, I think if I had stretched every day, it would definitely be helping me now. Yeah. But now I'm trying to stretch every day, and I don't. Yeah, once you let your mobility go a yeah. bit, it's hard, eh? Yeah. Super I've hard. always been pretty flexible, but... I'm definitely a lot tighter than I have been. And that's, you know, a lot of injuries and stuff help that. But yeah. I wish I could stretch every day. Yeah. What else have we had? Sven Martin likes to speak to Anchor every day, if possible. <laughs> Sounds like he's always in trouble. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's been a few ones. Eddie, Eddie Masters washes every day. 
It does. That surprises me too. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't. I don't think I do anything that. Yeah. You haven't got many sort of rituals or routines. No, that I tried having. I tried waking up and having a cold shower. Oh yeah, you've had a go. At tried, that. Yeah, no, that didn't last a week. No, it's hard work. No, no I. Yeah, there's nothing right now. Right now, I'm just trying to eat healthy because we just seem to be on the road, stopping at, um, you know, fast food joints and tasting all the burgers out. It's great. But yeah, eating I eating healthy, healthy on the fly in the UK is not easy. No. You've no. got to be prepared, which is not, when you're on tour, is not going to happen. No. So, yeah, best of luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks a lot for your time. I know you've got to go uh, backstage and yeah, uh, thanks, Chris. sort everything out, but appreciate your time. And I know our, our listeners will be glad to hear from you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. If they want to uh, find out more about you and follow you through however many more seasons of Smashing It you have, where's the best place to look? Is it Instagram? Or? Yeah, or Instagram. And, you know, I'll definitely be at the World Cup racing. Cool. I'll be back there this year, next year. Good stuff. And we'll put yeah, we'll put a link to your Instagram and Facebook and oh, stuff cool. in the show Thank notes you. so people can find that. Thank you. Nice one. Thanks, mate. And Thanks, uh, Chris. look forward to the tour later on. Thank you. Cheers. All right. I really hope you enjoyed the reprisal of this episode with Greg. Don't forget to follow the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app now or by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. I'd also love it if you could give us a follow on Instagram where we're at Downtime Podcast. All right. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. Ride.